Call in 1-800-TL... 1-800-T-A-L-K. Did you forget how to spell talk? I did. (laughs) (laughs) I did. Welcome to Talk Talk Vote, a podcast by the League of Women Voters, Kansas City, Jackson, Clay, and Platt counties. So, Rachel, we've talked a ton on this podcast about state legislation that's passed and some that hasn't passed, we hope, because we've had an influence. We've also talked about some local issues like policing. In fact, there will be an issue on the ballot this November about policing that we will talk about more later, I'm sure. There will also be a marijuana issue on the ballot this November. It looked like it wasn't going to pass. And then the people who initiated the petition asked the Secretary of State to re-examine the signatures. And then it wound up on the ballot after all, which was a huge surprise. That just happened a couple of days ago. So we haven't talked a ton about national issues, but I'm guessing a few things have passed. Am I right? Yes, indeed. By any chance, have you done some research on that? And can you explain that to us? Absolutely, I can. So, yeah, we haven't talked about federal legislation since the end of last year. We did a little bit of a recap. But, yes, things have uh, happened since then. We are still in the 117th Congress, which is typically referred to as the 2021 to 2022 term. So far this session, there have been 163 laws signed into being. Okay, well, wait a minute. First off, 2021 to 2022, what month to what month? What are the dates? Great question. So it's actually a lie. It's technically 2021 to 2023, but it's January 3rd of 2021 to January 3rd of 2023. So it's it's all of 2021 and all of 2022. Only 160. How many? 163 laws. That seems like not very many. I will say it. It's a little confusing to Look at how many things that have been signed into law. The 163 here reference both substantive laws, so that make like an actual change to the law, whether or not it impacts you in your daily life. But it also includes ceremonial laws. And that includes things like naming the post office at the end of the block. I will say that this session so far, there have been more substantive than ceremonial bills passed. And that's generally true that the percentage of bills passed weighs more heavily towards substantive bills than ceremonial. But there are generally still a good chunk of bills that are uh, just the ceremonial types of things. Okay, so do you have any background on other sessions like 2019 to 2021? Because we're three quarters of the way through the session right so roughly any comparison like how many bills passed 2019 to 2021 the 116th congress which was 19 to 20 passed 233 substantive bills and 111 ceremonial bills so we are kind of behind the pace but but i know that with the state legislature it was nothing 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 everything 
Yes. So that that did happen also a lot with the 116th Congress. They didn't pass a lot. And then in the what's called the lame duck session, which is just one of the best names for a congressional period ever. Yeah. Uh, they passed a whole bunch of stuff in the last two months of their session. So we might see that again this time because I know so at the moment they're on recess, but they will reconvene in September. And so we'll probably see a lot more activity then. So while we do have time to still get on track with the productivity levels of previous congressional sessions, there has been a trend that fewer bills are passed kind of year by year. However, most of the sources that I read made a point to note that it's not that there are fewer changes being made to the laws. It's just that oftentimes more changes are packed into one bill. And so that's part of why the numbers of bills decrease. Gotcha. So some cool things that have passed since the end of last year when we last talked about this. In June, there was a bill that was passed by both the House and the Senate, and it was signed into law called the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which is one of the first federal measures to address gun violence in quite a long time. Um, And it's the first thing to really address anything since the assault weapons ban of 1994 expired in 2004, I think. What does that law do? So that law includes funding for crisis intervention programs on state levels, and that can be used for like red flag programs. It also requires more extensive background checks for people between 18 and 21 who want to buy guns. And it requires some registration for people who want to sell guns as their only source of income. And it bars anyone convicted of domestic violence crime who has a, quote, continuing serious relationship of a romantic or intimate nature from having a gun. So it doesn't close all of the loopholes that we would like to see closed, but it was heartening to see it pass. So does that mean it bars people who have been convicted of domestic violence who have an ongoing relationship with the victim or with anybody? I believe with the victim. Oh, okay. And it does allow people convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence crimes to restore their gun rights after five years if they haven't committed other crimes. So, you know, it's a small step, but it's a step. The next thing that I wanted to talk about that was able to pass was the bill supporting infrastructure. This was the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. This passed last year. It was a tremendously large spending bill that invests in all sorts of things that you think of in infrastructure and that you wouldn't traditionally think of included in infrastructure. I think we talked about this in our previous episode about the federal legislation. So we talked a little bit about how some of the ceremonial bills are to name post offices. Well, there was an even more exciting post office law that was passed this year, and that was a law that changed the rules 
that had been requiring the post office to pre-fund all of their employees' retirement funds, which had put the post office in just like kind of incredibly dire financial straits. They had been accruing all sorts of debt. And so there was um, a restructuring of that this year, which was very exciting for any of our uh, fans of the post office. I did not know that. Do you have any information on how that's affected the solvency of the post office? Not yet. So it was uh, signed into law in April for a little bit of numbers money. What the post office was required to do to prefund these benefits, it cost the agency about $5.5 billion a year. So this will make that go away. So does that put anybody's retirement at risk? No. Then the last thing that I want to talk about, which is very exciting because, okay, so for our listeners, this is a Wednesday that we are recording this. And initially we were going to record on Sunday, the 7th. Um, We ended up not recording then which is actually a good thing because during the time that we were supposed to be recording was when the Senate was having its final debates about the Inflation Reduction Act. And I was going to have to be sitting here like Googling live updates to see if they had actually passed it or not. The Inflation Reduction Act included the largest amount of spending on environmental protection and climate change, which is incredibly exciting. It also imposed a 15% corporate minimum tax rate for companies that have higher than $1 billion of annual income. So you might think to yourselves, well, obviously they must already be paying taxes because they're making money and they take advantage of all of the infrastructure in our country. So surely they're paying taxes, but haha, you would be wrong. They are not. The bill is proposing that it will raise $313 billion from that provision alone, which is... I have some questions about that. Okay. I know that surprises you. I'm shocked. We read about 15% minimum corporate tax. But then I also read that during the Trump administration, the corporate tax rate was lowered from 35 to 21. Can you explain the difference to me between like why, why if the corporate tax rate is 21, why there now has to be a 15% minimum? Why are they not paying 21%? That is a really good question. It has to do with loopholes. <laughs> so the way that they have been able to get away with not paying any taxes is that in the past, they've been able to apply for tax breaks under a variety of different lenses. So for companies like HP, Nike, they use federal research and experimentation credit to get tax breaks. There are renewable energy tax breaks for um, DTE, Duke Energy, Excel Energy. There, So there are a huge variety of tax breaks that these companies can take advantage of. However, what this bill does is that this 15% applies to the earnings they report. And there are it doesn't include tax breaks. It is really just taken directly from their earnings report. There's not a way to finagle around that. So they still get some tax breaks, but this law just says you, you know, even though the rate is 21%. If you take a whole bunch of tax breaks, you can't get it down to zero. You can only get it down to 15%. That's the 
That's the least exactly. tax you can pay. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. So, because if you use the roads and you use the, you know, the cable and you use the water and you use all these things use, that we pay collectively, we pay to support. You use the workers who went to public schools, who went to public universities. Yeah. You count on the fire trucks to come and put the fire mm-hmm. out if something bad happens. Yeah. Yeah. You There's should a lot. kick in. You should yeah. kick in. Yeah. Other things that this bill does is that it allows Medicare to negotiate drug prices, which is a game changer because it is going to reduce prices for a lot of prescriptions um, for for folks on Medicare. And also, I, I don't think it will have an immediate effect, but it having another group trying to lower the cost of drugs out there is a good thing for everybody. Then there's also money for increased tax enforcement. So they're going to be adding a whole bunch of people to the IRS. There are kind of conflicting ideas about who will be impacted by that. The goal of that increased tax enforcement is to get the higher end folks more enforced. That's not always how it plays out. I was thinking about this provision and I was thinking, oh yeah, because it's a whole team. It takes a whole team to look at the books for a rich person, whereas it would take an auditor about 20 minutes to audit my taxes. Yes. Yeah. And it takes a whole team to look at a a whole big company's taxes. Um, Yeah. And one of the critiques I heard was that of of us not funding this fully was that more lower income people get audited. And I thought, well, that's insane. Why on earth would that happen? And then it occurred to me, oh, because it's easy because you show up with one person. Yeah. So the for some reference, um, IRS audits plunged 44 percent between 2015 and 2019. So during that time, the audits for Americans making a million dollars or more dropped by 75%. However, the audits for low to moderate income filers dropped by 33%. So if we can up the enforcement for those Americans making a million dollars or more, that would be a good outcome. Some of the things that they will spend this money that they are getting from the increased IRS enforcement from the 15% minimum corporate tax um, and from the prescription drug negotiation. So they're saving money there. And what they're going to spend that money on is there are going to be $369 billion spent addressing domestic energy security and climate change. There's going to be $306 billion spent on deficit reduction, which is just kind of a little housekeeping thing you got to do. There is going to be $64 billion that will be spent to continue three additional years of the Affordable Care Act subsidies, which were originally um, expanded under the American Rescue Plan in 2021. There's also going to be funding for drought relief. So we've got a lot of different things going on here, and I'm excited about all of them. Very cool. Those are the highlights of what's been going on in the federal legislative circle this year. That is really interesting. I have a question I probably should have asked you before you did your research, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Was there a bill that you thought was super interesting, but that didn't get a ton of press? 
since you didn't ask me this in advance, I didn't. I know. I'm Oops, sorry. Wait. I know. I'm um, sorry. Let's see. For... Oh, let's see. oh, oh, this was actually kind of interesting. I don't understand what this is, but there have been two bills passed that directed the Department of the Treasury to mint and issue $5,005 gold coins, $400,001 silver coins, and 750,000 half dollar clad coins in commemoration of the National World War II Memorial in the District of Columbia and the same number of the same type of coins to be minted emblematic of the legacy of Harriet Tubman as an abolitionist. Score. You scored with that one. Yes. yes. I'm so glad I asked that question. Yes. Yes. I want those. I want some. I want the Harriet Tubman coins. Yeah. yeah. A little bit disappointing that it's not Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill, but yeah. we'll get yeah. there. We'll get there. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel. You're welcome, man. I, you know, I, that was really awesome because I heard about some of those, but some of them I didn't totally understand. And uh, some of them I'd never, I didn't know about at all. So thank you. You are welcome. So Rachel, do you have a five for democracy for us? I do indeed. So the five for democracy that we have for everyone this month is to check your voter registration. And you might think to yourself, hey, Rachel, that's a pretty basic step. And we have all done that and we know we're registered. The reason that we're asking you to do this is because as of August 28th, the bill that was passed through the House and Senate and signed into law originally it was HB 1878 that has overhauled some of the voting laws. What it does is it gives the Secretary of State the authority to purge voter rolls. And so this is just something that we're all going to have to be more on top of. You can't just wait until the day before the election and roll in and hope that you're still registered. Yeah, in the past, the audits, they're officially called, were conducted by the local election authorities. But HB 1878 allows the Secretary of State to request audits. And so that means we need to be more active in protecting our vote. Yeah, that's an excellent fight for democracy. I can absolutely tell you what's up with the league. The first thing I want to tell you about is the social media campaign that we have going. It's called I Vote Because. So how this works for those of us unfamiliar with social media campaigns and hashtags and how to do. Actually, I should ask you how this works because you are a tech native. So we made a recording for this I Vote because campaign and so it's out there the two of us actually on video telling each other why we vote and so we're encouraging all of our members our listeners everybody in the whole world to tell us why you vote and the way that you do that is post a video or a picture of yourself on any of the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and use the hashtag I vote because. 
and you say the reason why you vote. And also be sure to tag the League of Women Voters of Kansas City in it so that we can help promote your reasons for voting as well. In most cases, our tag is at LWVKC. So here's why I appeal to you. First of all, the hashtag is the little... uh, It's It's a pound sign. It's a little pound sign. Thank you. It's a little pound sign. So when we say put the use the hashtag we mean you start with that pound sign and then you write the words that you want to be part of the tag right with no spaces correct no space and then you write like regular the reason that you vote right yeah and when you say tag you mean put the pound sign and then lwvkc well and that's tagging you- us you can do that, but that's not tagging us. So to tag us, you have to use the at symbol and you just type the at symbol and then LWVKC. You can find our social media profiles at LWVKC on all social media platforms. Okay. So I, I know that this was me telling you what's up with the league, but I appreciate that little bit of explain it to me because one or two of our listeners are a little bit unfamiliar with social media and are new to the game and definitely want to jump in and amplify all of our posts as much as possible because they are excellent league members. Yeah, absolutely. And it was thank you fun to, uh, I used to be a member of the social media committee, so it was fun to just we'll pop right in back there. Yeah. So that's the first thing I want to tell you about. All right. All right. What else you got for me? The other thing I want to tell you about is this partnership that we mentioned before with the Kansas City Public Library. And I have dates. At these five programs that we're doing with the library, we're going to talk about how the ballot measure process works in Missouri. And then we're also going to talk about the ballot measures that voters will see this November 8th. So there are a couple of big issues. There's a thing about Kansas City policing that'll be on the ballot in November. The marijuana issue made it. It looked like it wasn't going to make it. And then it made it. They did an appeal. And then it turned out that there were enough signatures. And so that made it to the ballot. And there are a couple of other things. So we'll talk about all of that, how it works, what's on it. And I have some dates for those programs. Love it. Yeah. The first one is September 27th, and it's from 6 to 7.30 at the Kansas City Central Library. That's the one downtown. And that'll be in the Hellsburg Auditorium. And the next one is October 3rd from 6 to 7.30 at the Kansas City Plaza Library. And that's in the Cohen Room. October 8th from 10 to 11.30, we are doing the presentation at the Kansas City Blueford Branch in the main meeting room on October 12th from six to seven 30. We'll be at the Kansas city Northeast branch library in their meeting room. And then on October 21st from 12 to one, you'll be able to zoom in and watch it virtually. And that will also be recorded and up on our YouTube channel. And I think up on the library channel as well. So you can always go back and look at that later if you want. So five chances to find out about ballot measures, at least five chances. That sounds fantastic. Yep. Thanks, Anne. You're welcome.
got some trivia about polls for you. I'm excited. The reason I wanted to talk about polling today is oh, because... Oh, we're talking about polling. <laughs> it's polling trivia. Oh, it's... Po- yes, P-O-L-L, not P-O-L-E. Okay, okay. Go on, go on. So the reason I wanted to talk about polling today was because, you know, in Kansas, we had this election a week or so ago. It was not nearly as close as the polls predicted. And that made me wonder, what, what, when did we start polling and how do they do it? And what's up with polling? So I have some trivia for you about polling. And to start, the first instance of what we call an opinion poll didn't happen until 1824. Okay. So there were there was sort of informal polling before that, but it wasn't done in any kind of methodical way. It was they mostly politicians would try to kind of take a read from campaign events or letters to the editor or editorials. They didn't do anything where they actually reached out and asked people in a methodical sort of scientific way until 1824. And the Harrisburg, Pennsylvanian which was a newspaper. Was it based in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania? It was, but oddly, the survey was in Wilmington, Delaware. What? Go figure. I know. There's a reason I told you all that. Yeah. Okay. So the newspaper, yes, it was. The newspaper was based in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, but they did this survey in Wilmington, Delaware, and they asked voters, which of course at the time meant white men, property owners so the first poll not super representative but anyway they asked their opinions on the presidential election that was happening that november so the newspaper reported that 70 percent of the respondents planned to vote for andrew jackson he did go on to win the popular vote but just by a narrow margin and then his opponent john quincy adams was actually elected president by the house of representatives So the very first sort of official poll didn't predict correctly and was kind of wildly off. I mean, if you say 70 percent, he's going to are going to vote for that guy and then it's a narrow victory and then he doesn't even take office. That's pretty far off. So did not get off to a good start. Do you know how the results of that election came out in Delaware specifically? I do not. That's okay. Because, like, maybe Delaware voted for him. Because maybe Delaware, maybe they were accurate in Delaware. I bet not. I bet not. Okay, most of the modern polls that are done now use the Gallup method. The Gallup method was invented by a dude named George Gallup, which I actually knew. You may have known that. Mm -hmm. That method involves sampling a randomly selected, statistically average group of people. I, I looked online and... I looked at a list of uh, 2,500 is about what they say is a good sample size to to have a pretty accurate result. So if you've got 2,500 people and they select them correctly and you question them correctly, you have about a two to three percent margin of error. And I looked at the list and it's really kind of funny because it'll say like white women and the percentage and then income and they have all these different categories and it's a really long list that they try to pull, you know, the sample. They try to make the people who are participating in the poll, they plug them into that percentage formula so that it's random. So it reflects the actual makeup of our country. Uh 
So Gallup's first poll in 1932 correctly predict, predicted correctly predicted a local election in Iowa. And then four years later, they went up against a more respected straw poll. Just to let you know, a straw poll is an unofficial poll that is often taken at a gathering. We actually went to St. Louis where they have Fitz of Soda. This was before the 2016 election and they were selling soda bottled in two different kinds of bottles. Um, one of them had Hillary Clinton on it and one of them had Bernie Sanders. And that was their straw poll. You know, wh whatever candidate's bottle sold out, that's who they predicted would be the candidate. Clearly, they were wrong because Bernie Sanders yes. sold out and he was not, in fact, the candidate. But indeed, that's the only straw poll I've ever seen in person. Anyway, back then, the straw poll was really well respected. And the straw poll was done by Literary Digest, which had two million people return surveys. So based on that data, Literary Digest predicted that Roosevelt's opponent, Alf Landon, would win the presidential election of 1932. So. You may know this, but Alf Landon did not win. Oh, Roosevelt that's why did. I didn't know his name. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. But then here's another little side trivia. Alf Landon was from Kansas. Oh, that's yeah. kind of fun. I have to say I'm, no, I shouldn't say that that would be rude if any of our listeners are named Alf, aka if they are from the 1800s. Um, but I am <laughs> glad that we have never had a president, Alf. But- Gallup did not always get it right. In 1948, they also said Dewey would win. We know Dewey did not win. Historically, no, he did not. No. Yet, uh, yet another local reference. So then there's some interesting tidbits about what people actually thought about some things. Okay. Not, not whether the polling was accurate or not, but what the public actually thought about a few things that I thought I would tell you about. So the first one is that President Roosevelt considered running for a precedent-shattering third term. And at the time, 63% of the American public disapproved of that. Hmm. But then in 1940, he did it anyway, ran for a third time, and totally won re-election without a problem. Yeah. So they said, oh, that's a bad idea. And then they voted for him anyway. <laughs> Then I thought this was kind of amusing. In 1949, only 6% of Americans had televisions in their homes, and only 44% had ever seen a television program. Oh, wow. But 62% thought that TV would someday take the place of radio in their homes. I just thought that was only 62% thought that. That is pretty cute. I thought that was really 38%, or I guess maybe less if some people didn't respond, but 38% uh, of people, nah, ride or die radio to the yep. end. I'm radio till the end, baby. All right, that's it. That's my poll trivia. That is fascinating. Thank you very much for sharing that with me, Anne. I'm Jocelyn Gajigle, State Outreach Director and Florida Coalition Coordinator with Full Riders. And I'm Reed Meg, the, the communications director for Vote Writers. Jaslyn, thank you so much for being with us. Reed, thank you for being with us. You guys are both from Vote Writers. Tell us briefly about your organization. How long have you guys been around and what is your mission? Sure. Uh, so Vote Writers is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. It was founded in 2012 in the response to growing voter ID restrictions at the time. And we actually just celebrated our 10th 
anniversary as an organization. And we were recognized by many of the cities where we have staff on the ground through official proclamations, declaring it, declaring April voter ID month. And so that was very exciting. Uh, Vote Writers' mission overall is to ensure that no eligible voter is prevented from casting a ballot that counts due to voter ID laws, either being directly from a lack of an acceptable ID or indirectly because that voter um, is confused. And so our key is to make sure that people are voting with confidence. And we carry out this mission in three key weeks. Um, One being identifying the voters who need assistance through community organizing efforts. And the second being educating through materials such as our voter ID information cards, our helpline voter ID education trainings. And then finally supplying eligible voters with uh, the ID that is most acceptable nationwide, um, and typically that is a driver's license or state ID, and efforts to make sure that everyone is very confident about what they have. And what are the mechanics of getting those materials to the public? And then after that, getting actually physically getting an ID for them? What are those mechanics? So the case is going to be uh, a little bit of a case-by-case difference, just depending on where you live now, uh, where in the country you were initially born. And so, for example, um, I'm from Orlando. And so if I met someone in person at an ID clinic is what we call our events in Orlando, um, and that person was born uh, within the same city, they could just walk to the health department down the street. And um, with their, if they have their driver's license already, and they just need an update of their driver's license, maybe. In that case scenario, they could literally walk to the office next door, get the document they need, and then go to the DMV and get everything the same day. Um, but there are some cases that are more challenging. So typically those are when people were born out of state and they just moved to a different state. Um, and so now you're having to contact um, the vital statistics department in that state, order the documents, wait about, uh, I would say two weeks on average. Um, it's been looking pretty good recently. It's been moving fairly quickly recently, which is great. Uh, but I would usually give people about a two weeks on average notice um, of receiving their documents. And then from there, it's covering the us covering the cost of the documents, uh, which on average, I think each one is like $50 and ordering it out of state. And we've gotten the question of, okay, well, I'm now I'm looking at the state website and it says that you can order a birth certificate for under $10. Why are you saying it's so expensive? Well, in that case, when you're going through that mail application through um, the government website, uh, where it's cheaper, that's for those that already have a driver's license or ID and just want their birth certificate for another purpose, not for the purpose of the ID. And so we find ourselves in that sort of catch-22 often. And so we typically start with ensuring that the individual has a social security card and a birth certificate. For women, most frequently, we're going to have to order a marriage certificate as well to prove that the person on the birth certificate is the name that they're currently using um, because we're more likely to change our names upon getting married. And so we have an extra document to order as well. Really, the process can take anywhere from the same day that we meet the individual within a few hours, wrap everything up very nicely to a few weeks of ordering all of the documents. Luckily, we are all ID experts at this point in time and are well-versed in what some of the different technicalities can be state by state and are, are very used to this process. Um, but it can be daunting to someone that regularly does navigate the process, someone that is very busy with work, uh, working a typical nine to five and can't call and stay on hold for long hours afterwards. Luckily, the Vital Statistics Department is open, I think, 
a couple hours after the traditional work day until about seven or so. But still, if you're trying to make an appointment with the DMV and you're getting confused the website, these are all things that we're here for. We're here to make sure that we are um, taking the stress load off of folks and helping you navigate certain um, systems, bureaucratic issues that you may be facing and helping you um, ensure that you are confidently getting the documents that you need and that it's as easy as possible. The long answer, <laughs> short answer would be, um, it really just depends on where you live and where you were born and where you need documents from. The other part of that is that in terms of how Vote Writers works, we work with local partners primarily. And that's very important because we won't, we're a staff of about 20 people. And so we can't be everywhere in the country. So we have, you know, more than a thousand local partners, whether it's just somebody, you know, an organization who gets our uh, voter ID information cards and hands them out or uh, people who we have deeper relationships with. But the idea is that uh, somebody who is out working with voters, like they're registering voters or they're doing other things and they run into somebody who doesn't have an ID, they don't have to be an expert on voter ID and how to get through all the bureaucracy at the DMV. They can say, oh, we work with vote writers, contact them, and then we can, we can really come in and, and help and be an adjunct to them. I think it's important because if you're working in a community, if you're an organizer in a community or you're just a, a you know, whether it's a church, a shelter, um, some other agency in a community, you're, you're trusted there. And so uh, getting that information from people who uh, they trust is, is, I think, good as opposed to us just sort of coming in and saying, okay, now we're here and we're, we're doing this. Where does the name Vote Writers come from? Uh, it comes from the Freedom Writers. Reed, do you want to go into that a little bit more? Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, obviously the Freedom Writers went to, to the South during the uh, civil rights uh, era and helped people down there, Black people, register to vote. And so our name is a little bit of a play on that. Sometimes people get confused and think that we give people rights to the polls to vote. We, we, don't, do, <laughs> we don't do that. Um, if you also sort of pull apart our name, it's Voter ID. And That's so true, yeah. we do give people rides to the DMV or we'll arrange for an Uber or a Lyft or some other sort of transportation to the DMV. If people don't have it, they need to get an ID. That's fantastic. Because, yeah, getting to the DMV is a big deal. Yep. Yeah. Being yep. at the and, DMV in general is terrible and getting there is just yep. adds yep. to the. Yeah. So we will we will arrange for rides and we'll also in certain cases have have volunteers or people like Jaslyn. Uh, who will go along with someone if they have, if if they are unsure of what they're doing, need 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 a hand, that kind of thing. You already sort of covered uh, what type of work your organization does. Uh, are there particular states that you are focused on with that work? You mentioned there are like certain states where you're physically on the ground, but obviously with only a staff of twenty, I I can do the math, and that's not every state. Right. Um, so we provide voter ID education and assistance in all 50 states. So regardless of where you are, if you call us with a question or you need um, assistance with navigating the ID process, we're still here for you. Um, however, we have staff on the ground in Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Wisconsin. 
when we were talking about like helping people get their IDs, I noticed that one of the services that you provide is mailing photocopies of people's IDs to them. Like for people, I feel like a lot of people my age or people who are from more economically depressed backgrounds, don't, I, like I don't have a photocopier in my home. And so getting a photocopy of my ID is actually a hassle. And I saw that you provide photocopies of people's IDs for them. So tell me a little bit more about what, what made you think to start that service? And are there other um, new ways that you've come up with to help voters and connect with them? Yeah, so um, this really grew out of the pandemic um, back in uh, 2020. And people wanting to uh, vote absentee by mail and but then some states having uh, the requirement that they had to provide a copy of the, their photo id in order to sign up to get an absentee ballot and but again we were all quarantined couldn't just run down because i mean sometimes like at your grocery store or a check cashing place or you know something like that they'll have a um or post office, they'll have a they'll have a photocopy for the public to use, but people couldn't really get into the um, really couldn't get out to do those sorts of things. So uh, we started this service, and basically, what you can do is you can, if you have a cell phone, you can take a picture of your photo ID and um, securely email that to our law firm, and our law firm will first check and make sure that that ID is acceptable to vote in your state. And then they will print that out and mail you two copies of your of your ID. So I mean, now we're not seeing as much demand for that service now, just because basically people can get out, you know, whether it's get to a check cashing place or the post office or the grocery store or, or you know, like a FedEx office or something like that. You you know, there, you can do that kind of thing. And then uh, some other ways that we've tried to be a little bit more innovative and serve the public while uh, we are um, have been, I guess, facing the constraint of, okay, well, when is the next time that we're going to be doing either an event? How do we get to people before that? How can we speed this process along? Are trying to implement some of our processes in a virtual manner. So one of these is our virtual ID clinics that are fairly new still that we, we just launched this program this summer. And essentially... We partner with local organizations, mostly community centers and homeless shelters to provide us with a list of individuals that need a birth certificate or marriage certificate. And then we order these um, certificates with them through vitalcheck.org, the vital statistics website. And then we cover the cost of the documents and then the documents get mailed to their location at their homeless shelter or their home. Um, and then from there, we get notified when the documents have reached them. And then we can move forward with next steps of taking the individual to the DMV. But this is just something that we can offer our volunteers that are across this country and wanting to do remote work um, and plug them in with the priority states where we have programs and people that have been, we have identified as um, in need of needing these documents. And in addition to that, we've also started our wellness phone banks initiative, where we have uh, been checking back on the individuals that we have already assisted with their IDs. Uh, we often hear from folks that their ID has not only helped them be able to vote, but has also helped them in other major areas of their life. 
So they've been able to obtain housing, medical care, uh, jobs, security. And so we love checking back on them and hearing about how their ID has helped them because ultimately that's not a story that they can tell at the polls until they have that ID. And so we want to be able to make sure that we're uplifting um, their stories in other areas of their lives and encouraging them to tell their stories. Um, and while we do that, we also encourage them to go ahead and get out to the polls and make sure that they're equipped with all the information that they need regarding voting. Wow. That's fantastic. That's incredible. In Missouri, which is where we are from, we just had a voter ID law passed that also placed some other restrictions around elections and voting. And so I know that a lot of Missouri residents are going to have questions about voting, especially around IDs. So how can vote writers help voters in Missouri? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, you can find your state's voter ID law online at votewriters.org. And on that main page, there's going to be a map of the U.S. So you're going to click on your state. So you would go to the Missouri page. And then on this page, you would find a list of what is currently accepted in the state. And so right now that list is a non-expired Missouri driver's license or um, a non-expired or non-expiring Missouri non-driver's license, so a state ID issued by the state, or a document that satisfies all the following requirements, which are the document contains your name, the name substantially matches a signature on your voter registration record, has a photograph, has an expiration date that is not expired, the document was issued by the U.S. or the state of Missouri, or any identification that has your photograph, is not expired, does not have an expiration date, is issued by the Missouri National Guard, the U.S. the U.S. Armed Forces, the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, the Missouri National Guard, the U.S. Armed Forces, including um, the Space Force. If you do not have one of these documents, then you would reach out to us and we would help you every step of the way through, including covering the cost of supporting documents such as birth certificates and marriage certificates, covering transportation to and from the DMV or any government office or corporate partnerships with Uber and Lyft, and also just providing um, assistance with the actual costs of the ID or driver's license once you're at the DMV and any questions that you have all the way through. Okay, so then where can people go to learn more about vote writers in general, either if they want to volunteer and get involved or where to get help? Absolutely. So folks can learn more about our work by visiting our website, uh, www.votewriters.org. You can also keep up with us on social media. Our handle is at VoteWriters on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can get involved with Vote Writers by visiting votewriters.org backslash volunteer or emailing volunteer at votewriters.org. And then lastly, those that need assistance with voting or identification questions can message our chat bot, which is located at the right-hand bottom corner of our website. Or they can also call or text our free helpline at 844-338-8743. And once again, that phone number is 844-338-8743. Yeah, we have lots of opportunities for people to volunteer, different things they can do. I mean, you can, I mean, if you're on the ground there in Missouri and can be a volunteer and, you know, help get their training and help people um, actually get IDs, that's wonderful. We also have virtual opportunities too. We do virtual uh, letter writing campaigns. We will give you names of, of people and addresses and you can, you know, write letters on form letters on sort of our letterhead to voters, reminding them of here's what you need to vote in your state, encouraging them to contact us if they need help. Sometimes we have celebrities drop into these virtual letter writing parties. We've got a relationship with the cast of Hamilton, 
um, oh, for example. And we've had people from Hamilton show up. We've, we're, we're always doing sort of things like that. We've, we've worked with uh, America Ferreira and Poderistas group. Not only is it good work, but also can have some fun with it too. Fun is important. How do you decide who's on the list of voters that you send mailings to? In different places, we can we get lists. For example, there's roughly 157,000 people in the state of Georgia who don't have a photo ID on file with the Secretary of State's office. It doesn't mean that they don't necessarily have an ID, but they haven't. They don't have that on file. And if they're going to be wanting to vote absentee, that would be a problem because they don't. There's nothing there. To, there isn't like an identifying number to match. And so we got that list of people and we reached out, we reach out to them. There are different ways to sort of figure out who might be vulnerable not to have an ID. You know, in Wisconsin, we find out who voted provisional ballots in the past, meaning that that's somebody who didn't have an ID. So we have, you know, send letters or do outreach to them. So that kind of thing. And if you are working with an organization that is strapped for cash, do you help out with postage and the materials that they would need to participate in that kind of campaign? Absolutely. You guys are awesome. Okay. So our last question, which is very important, do you have any pets? Um, I actually dog sit on WAG. My boyfriend and I are looking at getting a dog right now. Uh, but for the moment, we love taking care of random dogs and learning about different dog breeds and different uh, dog activities. Um, so I'm a very big dog person. I follow, um, through the pandemic, I was cleaning out my social media pages and I found that I followed uh, over 30 dog accounts. <laughs> <laughs> so would those be accounts about dogs or would those be accounts that the dogs owned? <laughs> the dogs own the accounts. <laughs> yep. Yep. My husband, uh, we had a dog with an account <laughs> with a who had, who had more following than I did. <laughs> I I don't have any pets. Um, I love dogs. I also love bears. And one of the things we do is, have you ever, ever heard of explore.org? No. Uh, basically, they have webcams in wild spots all over the world. And they have a webcam in Alaska where you can watch grizzly bears or big brown bears eat salmon, catch salmon at the, at the waterfall and do that. I have I have it on like all the time, my wife and I, it's, it's in Katmai National Park, but so go to explore.org and look for, look for the, the bears. And it, like this time of year, they have a, a contest to, you know, for people to vote on who is the fattest bear. <laughs> it's great. Okay. I, that counts. That totally counts as Absolutely. your pet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pet yeah. bears. We've not gotten that answer yet. That's no. a first. Thank you both again so, so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really, really appreciate it. Really and appreciate we're so excited it. to um, be benefiting from all of the good yeah. services that you yeah. provide. Thank you for being our partners. Absolutely. You're welcome. Appreciate That's what we're here for. This episode of Talk, Talk, Vote was produced by Rachel Thompson and me, Ann Calvert. The theme music was written by Hanging Chad Studios. You can reach us at talktalkvote at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and talk, talk to you later.